folks, how you doing? Look, last week we had uh, these boys here on this fine podcast. They had a movie called Black Narcissus, and normally they like to get someone in who had something to do with the movie, but unfortunately all those people are dead, and because they were in a movie about nuns, they're all in hell. So, instead they got me, Edwin Booth, America's foremost actor, to talk to you today about these fine guys. Now, Brendan and Jason are the kind of guys, they're like brothers, they're like good brothers, you know. Uh, back in my day, I had a brother, John Wilkes, not a great guy, did some bad shit. We don't talk about him anymore. You think about me, Edwin Booth, the best Booth. I was in plays. I was not in Black Narcissus because, you know what, I wasn't in any movies, but I went to heaven. Guess who didn't? John Wilkes. So, I want you to stick around. I want you to kick back. I want you to kick open a bottle of cider. I want you to sit down. I want you to put these guys in your ear holes, and I want you to listen to them hard here on For Screen and Country. Booth out. What an obscure actor to come on our podcast. And weird criticism, a uh, weird thing he mentioned is that nobody from Black Narcissus is alive, so they can't do it. But yet, uh, how old is he? No, no, no. I, I think what he said was that they were both not alive and in hell. Because they were nuns. Yeah. Well, no, it was, it was mainly because they were playing nuns on screen and they were blaspheming against the one true God, Yahweh. Right. Yeah. Because the Catholic Decency League... I want to thank the Catholic Decency League for getting us a, uh, a great introduction person there. Yeah, hey, uh, I appreciate you guys uh, sending him over. Bill Donahue, if you're out there, we're, we're, we're rooting for you. Yeah, and, and you and your brother, Phil. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the Catholic Decency League! That's my Phil Donahue. I don't even know if that's the name of it, but we'll just say it is. Whatever. Whatever. <laughs> Who cares about those motherfuckers? What matters is what we're doing now, Brendan, well, and what, what we are doing now. Well, I want to know, first of all, who the hell you are. Well, I'm Jason. Well, I'm Brendan. Oh, hi, Brendan. Okay. We're shaking hands, if you can hear it. It Wait. Okay. He's I actually touching up. me, and it's kind of greasy. Sorry, I'm sweaty. But this is for screen? Ugh, and country. I had a mouthful of beer. Leave me alone. <laughs> And what do we do on this show, Jason? Tell the folks. We basically jerk each other off, Brendan. What else do we do, though? We talk about movies, and specifically the top British movies of all British time, according to the British Film Institute in 1999, which is when one uh, parties like it is. Yes, if Prince has taught me anything. Mm -hmm. Give me Jerome now. Besides fashion, it is that. You took a lot from him. You always wear a lot of purple suits. Maybe that's I'm, why I'm sweating so much. Yeah, I think I so. I am wearing like eight layers. And that's why you keep going to Jehovah's Witness meetings, and they keep telling you to leave, but you keep going. And that's why I have a bathroom where I secretly have like 200 recordings of songs I'll never release. Very nice. Very yeah. nice. You're a good man. <laughs> Thank you. But we are going to talk about a film this week, but before we get to that film, we have to talk about last week's movie, Black Narcissus. Folks, this was quite a movie. Quite the film full of nuns. Nuns everywhere. And nun accoutrement. Not much running on their part. No, no nuns on the run. No nuns on the run. Just nuns sitting in place, mostly. And losing their fucking minds. And losing their minds. But, you know, if you were in the Nepalese mountains, you'd probably lose your mind, too. Uh, I don't know why you have to to assume what I would do in that situation. I know what you would do. And it would eventually involve eating my flesh. Let's go to our first comment. All right. When Jason makes good points, I move on. <laughs> uh, our first comment... Uh, so this is, of course, regarding Black Narcissus. Mm-hmm. We had some comments from some listeners. Ooh. Uh, the first one is from Adam Pellman. And he says, This is uh, far from my favorite Archer's film, which, of course, we said is the Powell and, Michael Powell and Emmerich Pressburger, what they called themselves and they collaborated. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, far from my favorite Archer's film, but it's gorgeous to look at. It's a fascinating psychodrama, and I have a fondness for it in part because I work at a university that was founded by an order of nuns. Hmm. I wonder if they're the same ones. Probably yeah, not. D- definitely. Adam <laughs> Pellman is like, yeah, like 75 years he old. He gets to watch them wrap their vows every two years. <laughs> yep. Uh, what does Todd Lawrence have to say about this film? Uh, Todd Lawrence says, it's a crazy film. What can you say about a horror film in which the most horrific moment is the application of lipstick? It's true. That isn't actually a terrifying. That is a pretty bit. terrifying screen because you know shit is going down. That's I believe that's what um, the main nun says in the movie too. She's like, she, oh, I say shit is going to go down. Oh no, she says it like you just did. Oh, <laughs> she really changes her character. Wow, shit's going down. Shit's going down. That Ruth bitch be crazy. <laughs> I sound like Tracy Morgan there. Uh, you did kind of, a little bit. Sean William Scott. Oh, sorry. That's uh, Sean Williams Holt. There we go. Oh, I keep thinking Steffler's writing it. <laughs> I would love if just a, like the random... I, I mean, I feel bad calling him a C-list, but he kind of is now. But like a random like C-list celebrity was just listening every week. <laughs> he's on TV's A-list now because he's on Lethal Weapon. I love Sean Williams Scott. Yeah, he's great. Except uh, for Bulletproof Monk, but we'll let it slide. That's for a different podcast. <laughs> he did what he could. <laughs> uh, but he says, Sean Williams Holt says, uh, my second favorite Powell and Pressburger collaboration, only behind the red shoes, which is going to be coming up at some point. Uh, Jack Cardiff's camera work and patented color scheme are gorgeous, but what I love most is Kathleen Byron as the unhinged sister Ruth. It wins on style, script, and especially acting. You won't find many films, or any perhaps, on the AFI list that includes so many great female actors yeah there's all everybody in this movie is great that I mean, is no question but yeah special special props to kathleen byron man. and that is true about the afi there's yeah. there's a very heavily male white male dominated list to be fair though a heavily white male dominated industry for a long time uh, to be ex- still yeah to be extra fair a heavily dominated a uh, heavily dominated white male bfi list yes, honestly. that's also true yeah. yeah i mean like black narcissist is i feel like an exception to the rule because mm-hmm. there are many strong like female strongly defined female characters yes uh especially kathleen byron like yeah. holy shit wow. yeah professional wrestler clearly za cooley says watched it at thanksgiving and i almost couldn't follow along with the story because i was mesmerized by how beautifully shot it was i once read a review that this is how superhero movies should be filmed and i never got that th- thought out of my head that would be really interesting if they if they filmed superhero movies with this kind of painted eye that uh the jack cardiff had you know can you imagine though if like in the avengers the city is getting destroyed but it's just like a matte painting just a beautiful matte painting and <laughs> little, little cg little cg uh, uh enhancements here and there little animated little, no, little gifs they could just mat in gifs you yeah. want actual gifs actual gifs matted in <laughs> uh kyle keppen says I love this film. So many great elements. The fantastic color by Cardiff, great acting, memorable score, a scarce-as-hell horror movie ending, uh, perhaps the best map paintings ever used in film, and a critical look at British imperialism. Also, if there's a person that isn't charmed by the sight of Mr. Dean riding a donkey, I certainly don't want to meet them. Even even more so when he's drunk. Yeah. <laughs> he, he, we never even talked about that. He, he's riding that little donkey, and it is adorable. He owns it. He owns that donkey. What a jackass. Ah! Okay, so this is in reference to the brown face kind of elements of the movie. You want to read that yeah, next Yeah, absolutely. Right so, so Ashwin Arvind says, In reference to the brown face elements, speaking as an Indian, I can offer up a choice of overlooking the problematic elements to enjoy the fact that you basically have the first version of Alien or The Thing here. As for the problematic parts, I would have allowed it, except that the part that part of the story makes no sense. Gene Simmons' character never really makes sense, and the Prince love story is mostly just a distraction from the more interesting nun stir craziness. Yeah, the, the, she never really goes anywhere. Like, there's never really yeah. any payoff to that character. I mean, 
sort of, but it's not really like like the prince uh, i don't even remember what happens to her <laughs> it's been a while yeah. it's been a whole week <laughs> wink wink um well she runs off with uh the prince yeah okay who played by sabu yeah the homicidal okay. so genocidal she runs off with suicidal sabu. maniac that's sabu <laughs> he um, broke his neck when he was filming this movie because he jumped off the side of the monastery <laughs> you have to do a fucking arabian leg drop or whatever the right. fuck he calls it um <laughs> Okay, well, our last comment here is from Chase Gregory, and he says, this is kind of a different point of view, he said, weirdly, I had a hard time getting into this movie when I last tried to watch it for whatever reason. I'll try it again sometime, as I will for most Powell and Pressburger films. He says, I've already seen A Matter of Life and Death, which is great, and Tales of Hoffman, which is beautiful looking, but made me realize that opera really isn't my thing. (laughs) Again, uh, Matter of Life and Death is on this list. It will come up at some point. Uh, Tales of Hoffman is not. Okay, and and I gotta say, uh, uh, Chase, listen, it's okay, man. Some of these movies we've watched have been harder to watch than others. Yeah. And and as as beautiful as this movie is, it was not an easy movie to get myself to watch. I'm glad I did because it was super cool. But it's uh, yeah, you need a real push sometimes to watch some of these older movies. Yeah, it's not a movie I would have gone out of my way to watch, um, just based on the plot alone. But as far as this project goes, it's definitely not. I don't think it was like. It's no English patient. Yeah, I, I don't know. I wasn't like bored or anything. Like I enjoyed it a lot, a great yeah. deal. And there's always so much visually going on to keep yeah. you interested. And I think I think if I had watched the Christian censored version with the where the parts where she wasn't a nun were cut out, I think I would have been <laughs> less enticed. Yeah, because those parts made so much more sense in yeah. the context of the film. But yeah, uh, I know I I. I I enjoyed it a lot. It's not any. I don't think it's anywhere close to the top of my list right now. But it's it, it was a solid entry. Solid, a solid entry. A beautiful looking film. Now we're going to go to our last segment here before we get talking about uh, the madness of King George. Uh, we are going to compare this movie, which is number forty four mm-hmm. on the BFI list, to number forty four on the AFI list. All right. And this is going to be an easy one for me because I have not seen it. Okay. So. Number 44 on the AFI, the American Film Institute Top 100, is The Philadelphia Story with Cary Grant and Katherine Hepburn. I've not seen it either. I've not seen it. So I bet you it's real good, though. I'm sure it is, but I am unfortunately, guys, we will have to say N.A. Uh, watch uh, Philadelphia and then watch The Philadelphia Experiment, and I bet you you'll get the same movie. And, and West Side Story. And, West and Side combine Story. them all into one movie. And then go watch some Paul F. Tompkins comedy, and uh, then the Philadelphia thing will be complete. Yes, and then watch an M. Night Shyamalan movie, because yeah. all, they always take place in Philadelphia. Twist! They don't! It's Wilmington. <laughs> hey, we're in Delaware. Wilmington. <laughs> Alright, well, anyway. Well, with that nonsense out of the way, Jason, let's get into it. Let's talk about number 42 on the list, The Madness of King George. Wow. That is right, folks. Number, I'm sure you all recognize that song. Well, you probably How do, could you but, not? But not, maybe not associated with the movie that we were talking about, but we are talking about number 42 on the British Film Institute Top 100 list, 
The Madness of King George, starring Nigel Hawthorne, Nigel Hawthorne, Helen Mirren, Rupert Graves, and a bunch of other people. I'm sure you don't mean Rupert Everett? Both of them. Ah, Rupert Everett and ah, Rupert Graves are And right Julian, Julian Wyndham, is that his name? The guy that plays Prime Minister Pitt? Yes. Yeah. Looks very familiar and I don't know Oh, and Ian Holm. How the hell did I forget Ian yeah, Holm? Yeah, Sir Ian Holm himself. Yeah, so lots of great people in Mr. This Kleiner from Brazil, which we'll get to eventually. And directed by um, uh, Nicholas Hidner? <laughs> I'll assume you're right on that one. I have it written down, guys. I do research. I just, I just, I didn't know it offhand. But anyway, yes, based on the stage play, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, Jason, before we, well, I mean, we're going to talk about this yeah. movie. That's what we do. That is what we, we do. Talk here. about the movies. So, by the way, we have to mention too that this movie in England. If you're listening from England, this movie was yes. called Hello, the Madness. Trap. This was movie was called the Madness of George the Third. I, I have to translate. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Uh, what he meant to say was this. This movie is called the the Madness of George the Third. The Madness of George the Third. Yes. Which I guess if you're gonna mention that now, I'll mention that little piece of trivia. Mm-hmm. Do you know why it's not called that in the in the United States of America? I do, Brendan. But tell the people why. Well, the reason it's not called the Madness of George the Third and it switched to the Madness of King George is two reasons. Number one is the long-rumored reason that they took off the three, not to confuse American audiences who might think there were two movies that preceded this, and this was the third in a trilogy. They wouldn't have liked the first two either, because they would have all been in German. <laughs> That's uh, a really funny joke. They actually... Oh, oh, sorry. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> the other one that is actually confirmed, like the director was asked about that rumor, yeah. and he said... Um, well, you know, you're probably not far off, but the other thing is that they didn't want to call it just, they, they did want to put the word king back in the title mm-hmm. because it was just the madness of George the third. And he said, well, they took out the third, but we did want to make sure it said the madness of King George. So it wasn't just like the madness of George. We wanted to make sure that all those Royal f- watchers in the United States knew what they were getting into so that they could go and see the movie and the, pay them money. The madness of curious George. <laughs> That's a movie I want to see, Brendan. I want that animated and live action film. All right, but we're not talking about a monkey today. We're talking what? about a real man. Okay. Because man was not descended from monkeys. Man was created wholesale out of dirt. So, let's talk a little bit about this movie. Actually, you know what? We're even going to talk... We're even going to go a little bit before the movie. But yeah, set us up. Because this is a this is very much like... It's a historical drama. Yeah. Um, I would say a light... Kind of a lighthearted historical drama in a way. Like, it's not mm. super, super... It has been described on various sites as a comedy drama, and there certainly is some comedy in it. Uh, Nigel Hawthorne is, is pretty funny. In Don't get me points. wrong. It is a dramatic story, yeah. but I think they tell it in a way that's not so heavy-handed. Yeah. So set us up. Where are we All in right. history? So we have to go back in time a little bit. So, uh, Queen, <laughs> so in 1714, Queen Anne of England dies. Queen Anne has no issue, meaning she has no children. So they have to find someone in the royal family. They basically have to King Ralph it, and find somebody in the royal family. You did not do that. I did. Uh, they had to find somebody in the royal family to, you know, become king. And they start looking through the family, and they realize that too many of them are fucking Roman Catholics. We had an issue with them last week because of the Catholic Decency League. Yeah. Yeah, so I understand what their issue was. They didn't want these prudes coming in and ruining the king. Kingship, right? Mm-hmm. That's what it's called, the kingship? Kingship. It's like premiership. It's his boat. So anyways, they started going through the family trees, and eventually they found an appropriate Protestant to take over uh, uh, the king, uh, the monarchy, I suppose is the word we would use. And that monarch was a guy named George I. And turns out George I was a goddamn German uh, from the House of Hanover. And 
What's an interesting fact is both George I and George II were both born in Germany, and I, at least George I and possibly George II both didn't speak any English. They only spoke German. So by the time we get around to George III, finally we have a George that is born in England and can speak English from birth. I, as soon as he came out of the womb, he was just speaking English. No, oh, of course, like like we all do. Yep. So, uh... Hey, how'd I get in this giant womb? He was also from Jersey. So George Ludwig, later George I, becomes yeah. the king of England, and then... Uh, so I thought George's father was George II. Turns out that's not the case. George II was George's grandfather. Okay. And his father, Frederick, the Prince of Wales, died before George II. So then, uh, young George became the heir to the throne. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So George ascended to the throne on the death of his grandfather in 1760. This is a very important time in, in especially in American history, but in world history. Um... In, I believe, 1756 began what is known as the French and Indian War, and then around 1760 began, the war in kind as a whole began what is known as the Seven Years' War. Now, some people, if you talk to them, some historians, now, we talk about World War One, we talk about World War Two, we talk about, you know, Napoleon at Waterloo and that whole thing, but really, if you want to boil it right down, this is probably the first world war, the first global conflict was the, the Seven Years' War. Uh... Uh, and as I said, in, in America, it was called the French and Indian War, and it was a war between an Anglo-Prussian-Portuguese uh, alliance fighting France and Russia and Spain and Sweden and various native tribes all over North America and Europe and the world. So, yeah, this was a, th this war was a precursor to the revolution in America. A lot of the principals in that revolution, George Washington and uh, uh, a lot of those guys, they cut their teeth in the army at this time. I believe, actually, George Washington was an adjutant to General Braddock. Uh, George Washington uh, had wooden teeth, so that's impressive. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Very impressive. So George further angered the colonists with his rather reasonable proposal that since the British were defending the colonies, that they should probably pay a tax to Britain like everybody else in Britain did. Because at that point, the colonists didn't pay any taxes. Um, the problem, though, according to the Americans, was that, eh, well, it wasn't really fair to tax them because they didn't have any seats in Parliament. And so we get the famous American revolutionary phrase, no taxation without representation. Um, so the king decided to work around that. Rather than giving them a direct tax, he he, entered, uh, he offered the Stamp Act, which basically put a tax on mailing stamps and such things, uh, and that really pissed the colonists off. <laughs> they really didn't like that. And we, we eventually led to a number of incidents in the run of the American Revolution, the Boston Massacre, uh, and eventually the king is like, okay, fuck it, we're taking away all, all the stamp tax and all the, the taxes we've put up, the trade, uh, what do you call them, uh, duties, the only tax we're leaving is tea. And we all know what happened there. A bunch of uh, drunk Americans dressed up as natives went onto a bunch of ships in the Boston Harbor and dumped all the tea in there. So What uh, a waste. Absolutely. So we had the Boston Tea Party. So, But often George gets the blame in this period. He's seen as a tyrant from American uh, from American perspective. You know, they, they think it was the evil King George that was trying to oppress them. But, uh, but in reality, he was actually acting exactly as a constitutional monarch should. He was deferring to his cabinet. His opinion was less important than the opinion of his ministers because they were the ones that were running the show in the civilian government. So eventually the war is lost when the treaties of, of Paris in 1782 and 1783 are signed and it establishes the USA as an independent nation. So George has to deal with that. He's not happy about that. But he also said, I think at one point, that he would want to be the first person to like 
engage with a, an independent USA if that were the case, even though he had lost the war. So, and then after that, he caused a bit of a stir because he picked a new prime minister. And the prime minister he picked was a young man named William Pitt the Younger, uh, to differentiate him from his father, William Pitt the Elder. Uh, William Pitt was 24 years old uh, when he was made prime minister, which is insane, even then, and would be insane now. And he was also not the leader of the Tories. I believe it was uh, kind of a power play on George's part to pick a prime minister to show that he could pick whoever he wanted to be his prime minister rather than just the leader of the given party in power. Uh, I don't know if he was a lord or... I, I don't remember him being referred to any title, but William Pitt was his prime minister for 17 years. That's a long time. So this takes us kind of to where the movie begins. We got all the history out of the way. Now we get to the movie, which is about the summer of 1788. It was the summer of 78! Oh, yeah! It's 88. Susie got married! Okay, put Sorry. it away. But, Save your Brian Adams. We but, got George to talk about. But, but... Put the, it away. But Put your dick away, too. The, we can't be having that on the podcast, well, hold, Okay, well, if I'm going to put my Brian Adams away, I've got no problem with my dick away, because the two go hand in hand. Uh, so to speak. Hand in dick. Hey! Hey! So, despite the loss of the colonies, George remains a popular king, and he actually remains a popular king through most of his life, even near the end, which we'll talk about later. Well, especially because this movie's from a British point of view, let's yeah. not forget. Yeah, exactly. So, for, for the Britons, British, uh, uh, rather, George was very popular. Um, by this point in his life, he had become, at least in the minds of those around him, uh, rather eccentric. And you have to understand that royals would go that way. I mean, a lot of them were so inbred that they were going to get weird anyways, but, I mean, when you run a country, when you basically have... Now, he was not a god-king like a lot of the kings of old, but he was, he was a constitutional monarch, but still, he was the fucking king in England. He could do whatever the fuck he wanted. Did he get really, a weird. Did he really not have a mistress, like they say in the movie? Uh, I, yeah, according to the history, yes. Okay. This movie cool. is surprisingly historically accurate, based on what I read. Like, a lot of the stuff... I didn't notice anything that was specifically out of whack. Yeah, there may be, like, a few I'm sure things there was. For, for, you know, dramatic reasons, but, yes, but from what nothing I, was uh, stood out. No, nothing specifically okay. stood out. So this is all pretty pretty accurate. Interesting. Um, so uh, he is highly concerned with the productivity and the well-being of the state, which really any king should be, but he's super into it. He, he talks about them calling him Farmer George. Yeah, and he takes that as a compliment. He does take it as a compliment. and uh, I don't know it, if it's supposed to be, It though? wasn't originally meant to no, be a compliment. Okay. It no. was an insult, but he embraced it because the people liked him for that, that he gave a shit about the farmers and, and, you know, kind of people on the ground level, the lower classes, as it were. Uh, he, so in addition to that, he's also super, he's always demonstrating that he just has a crazy ability to recall relations of yeah. like royals in Europe. He could tell you who was married to who and who hooked up with who and then who had a mistress and all this. And he shows that off early in the movie, early in the movie. When we see him, he's not crazy. He's just an eccentric King who is very energetic, and uh, uh, we later that may be part of one of his manic periods. But he really is is you know yeah, and he, and he seems like despite all his uh, qualms, I mean he's a, he's a royal, so there's obviously that uh, that he's got going against him as a person. Mm -hmm. But he doesn't seem like like a terrible guy. No, but as the movie continues, we start to see him getting a little little less, a little less. He starts to go a little crazy, um, and his mental state is clearly deteriorating. Yeah, um, his son George. Weird that he would be named George as well. Rupert Everett, right? Rupert Everett. I yes. think he might be my favorite part of the movie. He's, he's really good in this movie. He's and fantastic. This character will later be George the Fourth. He sees this going on, and he's kind of in league with Charles Fox, played by the guy who's the butler on Downton Abbey, <laughs> uh, whose name I forget, but he's great. 
Um, he's in league with Charles Fox, who is the Whig. He's the leader of the Whigs. He's the opposition in Parliament. And um, they both kind of think that this is an opportunity to pass a regency bill that would allow George to take over his father's position, essentially. That George III would remain king in name, but the Prince of Wales would essentially be acting in that role, which often happens in situations where you have somebody too young to rule or somebody who's incompetent. Mm -hmm. And in this case, they're starting to believe he's incompetent. And so George comes up with a scheme and he puts on this Handel concert as a pretext to have his dad go kind of nuts and show off his mental illness. And that's uh, exactly what happens. Jim Carter, Charles Fox, by Jim the Jim Carter, yes. He, wonderful. Jim Carter, if you're listening, you're the best. I love you. Oh, actually, um, yeah, you were, so you're mentioning, okay, so you're mentioning that the prince wants to basically expose him as yep. losing his mind so he can at take this handle, handle concert yeah. uh, that he stages. Do you, yeah. I have a clip from this because I really, sure. uh, I, I really like this scene. Yeah. But yeah, this is so, so, again, just setting this up, he, the prince wants to be, the prince wants to be king. Yeah. He wants to be named regent. What you have to understand is that they don't have the best relationship. And the reason they don't have the best relationship is that George III basically doesn't agree with how George is living his life. He thinks he's like too libertine. He's not, uh, at least that's the impression I got. He's not disciplined. He's not like studying. He's not doing anything that would like prepare him to be king. He's just kind of being, you know, like a, a layabout prince in some ways. But really George is working the politic angles because he wants power. George, right. Later George IV. So he know yeah. So he realizes, you know, if people see this, it'll start to turn the tide in his favor, and then he could possibly be king. The, the so this is the concert scene uh, where you know George kind of does everything that the prince expects he will end up doing. So what you should know before we play the scene is Pitt is advising the king not to go because he knows that mm. uh, the Prince of Wales, George's son, whatever, is doing this as a setup. Yeah. But, you know, George obviously is too proud. Oh, yeah. Just to, well, he's to... the king. Who's going to tell the king what to do, right? Exactly. Especially a, an old guy like him. Who, or not? I mean, he's not that old, really. Well, I he's mean, supposed to be 50. Yeah, he, but I mean, I feel like Nigel Hawthorne is way older than that. In this uh, movie. Nigel Hawthorne was 65 yeah. at the time. <laughs> so, anyway, here we go. I must ask you not to attend this concert, sir. You are not fit, sir. Not fit? be seen, sir. Not fit. Shop, shop, the king, the king. Not fit, sir, I beg. I beg. Not fit, sir. Not fit. I'll give him not fit. Telling me I'm the king, you hear? The impudence. Well, I'm here now. Play, damn you, play. Remember this one? Louder, sir! Louder! Lay it on, lads! What the fuck? What the fuck? Come on, boys, let's hear you. Give it some stick. Yo, put your heart into it, sir. All right, move over. My turn. Where are we? Ah, this is child's play, man. Oh, this is my favorite bit. That's how to do it, see? Come on, drop it. Give it some heart. That's how you. What's how you. You are talking. I'm not, I'm playing. What's how you. Not now, not now. Now give it a good whipping. Come on, come on. Crash it, crash it, you fellas. What's the matter with you? Right. 
Yes, this is Handel. <laughs> so what I'm sure you heard too in the clip is uh, his his wife, the Queen Helen Mirren, who we definitely have to talk about at some point. Mm-hmm. But she is basically yeah telling him like George, you're you're you're, uh, you're making a scene. He's like, what are you talking about? I play music. It's great. He literally like he like knocks the harpsichord instead of the way and sits down at the harpsichord and starts banging on it, which yeah. is those bad notes <laughs> that, you that, hear. Yeah, that terrible piano you heard was George. <laughs> Put some stack on it. And again, this is a movie that takes a very serious time in history and like you know kind of changes the tone a little bit mm-hmm. well and i mean i i think anybody that that has had you know relatives that have had dementia or or bipolar or something could tell you that it, it is terrible to see that happen to your to your relative but there are times where it can be pretty hilarious uh i mean and then and that's not to denigrate anybody that has that but certain things that happen certain things that are said can just make you laugh and yeah and this is kind of i feel like what this is portraying for it's better like, or worse for better or for worse this is that it is kind of funny but also this is a man whose mind is deteriorating well, that's the thing about this movie is that it do, it, it does both things right yeah, it does it, it makes very well. you laugh but it also is like a very serious take oh, on absolutely. mental illness absolutely yeah so yeah so he so he basically displays how crazy he is right here and uh so the king's condition is uh, starts to worsen, and, and they bring in some doctors to <laughs> take a look at him. They sure do. Yeah, uh, doctors that clearly don't seem to have much of an idea of what's going on, or, or of medical science in general. Well, you gotta get the humors out. You gotta get the humors out, and they they put like these weird hot glass things on his back, trying to suck the humors to the right places. They bring in a stool specialist who is super excited about seeing the king's eliminations. There's so many good lines about the stool. In this oh movie. yeah, he just can't. He can't. Uh, he can't avoid it. He loves it. So they don't seem to have much luck. But Lady Pembroke, Helen Mirren, suggests. Uh, whoa, uh, Lady Pembroke? Is no, that no, Lady no. Pembroke? No, Lady Pembroke is. Are you talking about the queen, his wife? Yeah. That yeah, that, that's that's the queen. Lady Pembroke is the uh, Elizabeth. All right. Well, yeah, Lady yeah. Pembroke suggests that Will is an ex-minister. Yes. Uh, who has some success in treating similar cases in Cheltenham, might be the guy to call. And that would be Mr. Ian Holm. Mr. Ian Holm. Sir! Is he a sir? No. Okay. Well, I mean, yes! No, Ian Holm is. I was going to say, I don't think uh, Chel- uh, I don't think uh, Willis is. Oh, no. But I'm pretty Ian sure play- Ian Holm is a knight, yeah. Played by Sir Ian Holm. Sir Ian Holm. Am I not even sure? Maybe yeah, Sir Ian McKellen. I'm pretty sure, and if he's not, then he should be. Well, we've just knighted him. We Sir Ian Holm, him. we salute you. I dub thee Sir Ian Holm. Man, he is a big fan of the show. He'll you be excited. Love it. So his methods basically boil down to anytime the king acts out inappropriately, uh, that Willis believes that is inappropriate, he straps the king to a chair. Yes. And the king fights this at every opportunity initially. And their meeting for the first time has to be heard mm-hmm. because this is this is how uh, this is how he gets to him, mm-hmm. and this is the, this is the first thing he says to him. Okay, want you to listen to this scene of King George the Third. Now, keep in mind, this is a king, so this, these people are not stepping up to him. Yeah. People are not even looking at him no. in the eyes, and this yeah. is a guy who immediately interrupts a conversation that the king is having with his servants or whatever, and immediately steps up the game. As a doctor. So here we go. Chop, chop, the king, the king. This is the king's. Who might must cure? Now you are following him straight as a ruler. Straight as a ruler. Straight as a ruler done by a ruler. And another beside that, and another beside that, until you have as pretty a plow field as you can this side of side and such. Put us out of our kingdom tomorrow. We would not. I have a farm. Our kingdom tomorrow would not want for employment. Give me management of 50 acres, 
Buying and selling and harvesting, I could do it. Make me a handsome profit into the bargain. I said, I have a farm, your majesty. The doctor immediately is like, the first thing he does, like you said, he's he's getting the king on his level. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. He's going to let the king know that he's going to talk to him straight and not just defer to him because he's the king. He's mm -hmm. a doctor. Well, he's not a doctor, but he's the medical professional. He's not a medical professional, but he is the medical professional in this situation, such that he is a professional or medical so the king fights the, the strapping uh, therapy just about at every opportunity, but over the course of the movie we see eventually he becomes like a dog in the sense that if you uh, get, you know, the, the sort of dog that you get mad at them and they immediately go to their cage because they know that's where they're going to be put. That's what George does. Yep. Um, so as the king is treated, Parliament is in a tizzy. Pitt continues to insist that the king is making progress and that he is fine, but Fox and the prince have obtained a copy of the report Pitt is holding. And they quote it to Parliament to show that he really isn't getting much better at all. No. I mean, yeah. I mean, it does get to the point, I think, before they get it where he is walking to the chair himself and allowing himself to be strapped in. Yeah. But they don't see that as any no, kind of improvement. they don't see that as an improvement uh, at all. And uh, they introduced the Regency Act, uh, which would allow the Prince of Wales, George, to assume the duties and powers of the king while the king recovers, quote-unquote. The bill passes the Commons, and it just needs to pass the House of Lords to be ascended into law. Uh, but it turns out that the king has actually been kind of getting better. He's starting to be more lucid. He's able to communicate with people without going off on weird tangents. He even starts saying what, what again, which is something he says early in the movie. That is a, that is a big thing. So yeah. that is the thing they established early in the movie. That he has this little affectation yeah. where he'll, he'll say a sentence and be like, such and such and such, what, what? Yeah. Oh, hey, hey. And as soon as he starts to become ill, yeah. uh, that goes away. And one of these servants actually even points out, uh, is, well, at least he's not saying what, what anymore. Yeah, and then you're like, oh, he's not, but that's kind of what makes him him. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. He basically comes back uh, to Parliament in time to be like, hey, I'm here. I'm your king. I'm doing all right. I thought you were going to say, I'm here. I'm queer. Get, Get used, used to, to it. it. So the king comes back and he Very resumes his position. Very progressive. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> the, the king comes back and resumes his position and reasserts his authority, telling the prince to put away his wife. Now, we didn't mention this earlier, but part of the reason that Charles... Sorry, not Charles. The reason that George wanted uh, the regency was because he was married to a Catholic, and that was a big no-no. Uh, and the fact that he hadn't told his father was a big thing because in those days there was literally a law... I don't know if George III was the one that got it passed, but there was a law that said that if you were a royal and you wanted to marry, you had to get permission from the king. And George had not given his permission, so he was kind of mad about that. Yeah, he got a, uh, a marriage certificate signed by someone because he paid them off. Yeah, and then uh, one of the... Uh, which one was it? Uh, one of the lords went down and basically ripped it out of the book. Yeah, I'm not sure. I will it. say that uh, there's a good deal of characters that I knew each one. Yeah. There was a few that ran together. Yeah. There was a, those powdered wigs yeah, exactly. sometimes threw me off. It can be hard. It's like um, you had having trouble with the nuns last week. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so, uh, the king basically, yeah, he comes back, he goes back to work, he cleans house, he fires a bunch of servants, well, fires them, like, gets rid of them, yeah. uh, and, and uh, gets rid of some of his closest people, including Willis, <laughs> sends them off. Uh, no, he keeps them on board, doesn't he? No, Willis... I thought he decided he he said he would pay him every year. Uh, he might have pay him, but that doesn't mean that okay. he's all work. He's he, around him. What I will say, the one guy I feel bad for is he fires his like right hand man, like his equerry. Yeah, I felt bad for that guy. Yeah, poor he dude. did. He did as much as as best he could. I wonder if it's a thing 
Now, maybe you can answer this for me, but I wondered at the time when I saw this scene. So, like you said, George Third is, is letting go of a lot of his servants and yep. stuff. I wonder if it's a thing where they saw him at his most vulnerable. I and, think that's what it is. Yeah, um, and he, like, can't have them. Well, it's, it's actually funny because I was listening to a podcast today about Stalin. And How dare you listen to another podcast? Yeah, oh, I listen to lots of podcasts. I cheat on you all the time. Oh, my I was God. listening to a podcast about Stalin, and they were talking about Stalin's death and how... Because um, basically they found him on his room in a pile of his own urine because he'd taken a stroke. And the people that were in that room, the guard, Stalin's confidants and whatever that were in there, were all afraid that if he recovered, that he might just straight up have them killed because they'd seen him in this compromising position. And I think that that's, yeah, I think you're right. I think that's what uh, George was doing, kind of cleaning house of people who'd seen him as a man. Yeah. Because uh, I think it's hard to like, it, I mean, I'm not supporting this theory, but it's hard. It's almost like, you know, if you're best friends with someone, you probably shouldn't be like working under them or yeah. something like that. Yeah, absolutely. It, it, sort of. Uh, it, friends in business often don't mix. So anyways, yes. our king has a chat with uh, with Pitt. Yep. It seems like he is ready to go and back to business. Or is he? And the movie kind of ends with him standing there with his family and it looks like he's back on the job. But we need to talk a little bit about what happens after the movie. Everything right? went well, right? Everything was perfect. No. It was not. Is the king alright is the question. And he sort of was. He kind of appeared to be. He kind of kept it together, but uh, he had another bout of illness in 1804, um, which would have been during the Napoleonic Wars, I suppose. Yes. And... I don't know why it's a... Yes. Yes. I'm the, I'm the foremost uh, expert thank, on this. Thank you, Mr. History. Yes. Uh, but he was able to kind of keep things together until about 1810. By 1810, he was blind. He was suffering from rheumatism. And his dementia came back. His dementia was returning, and he, but he was able to accept the need for the regents. And so they proposed a new Regency Act, which was passed. And in 1811, the Prince of Wales became regent. Uh, George attempted to get better. He was uh, treated, and he showed some promise in May of 1811 that maybe he was getting better, but that quickly turned. And he spent the rest of his life in Windsor Castle, basically insane, and died in 1820. And then young George became George IV, King of England. Yeah, I feel like it's a probably a wise move they ended before that, because yeah. this would have been a very depressing movie. <laughs> now, and, and one last thing to mention before we can get into the talk about the movie was the illness that he had. Now, the movie, at the end of the movie, suggests that he had... Uh, Pyphoria. Yeah, porphyria, which was a blood disease that would explain the detail that we learn in the movie that his urine was blue. Mm. Um, however... Modern modern historians and research suggest that based on kind of analyzing his letters and how he was writing, uh, apparently he wrote a sentence in one of his letters that was 400 words long with no break. That's a long sentence. Yeah, that's, that's what we call in the business a run-on. Absolutely. But what they believe is that he wasn't actually suffering from porphyria. They think that the blue urine may have actually been the result of a medicine he was taking that was made from a blue flower that would dye his urine. Uh, they think that it may have actually been uh, manic bouts of bipolar disorder, which would explain why he would have these moments of like incredibly high energy where you know he was he just kept talking and talking and talking and saying nonsense or whatever. That that is a symptom of manic episodes of bipolar disorder. So that's what we think now is it probably was bipolar disorder rather than a blood disease. Um, but that's George the Third in a nutshell. Brendan, tell me about this movie in its oh I thought production I, I thought you just did. Oh, no, I forget everything we just talked about. <laughs> well, the movie starts with... <laughs> all right, here we go. Okay, well, the film, first of all, like I said at the beginning, it is adapted from the stage play of the same name. Uh, I believe the stage play is like The Madness of George III. Yep. Whatever, anyway. 
which was written by Alan Bennett, who also appears in the film. Oh. I don't know if you know this, but towards the end, when George is arriving at Parliament to make his uh, quick speech, Alan Bennett is the one that gets cut off in the Parliament. Oh, he's that guy. The guy that's making the speech that just keeps going when everybody's uh, leaving. Right. <laughs> yeah. So the original stage play also had Nigel Hawthorne, yep. who also plays King George here, mm-hmm. playing the same role in the play. Uh, he was so determined, when he found out they were making the movie, uh, he was so determined to keep that lead role, uh, and to prove that he had screen presence, because a lot of people, at the time, Nigel Hawthorne had mostly done plays. Yeah. So he didn't have a lot of, he didn't have a lot of screen presence. He went and did a part in a movie called, a little movie, that is not in the BFI list, called Demolition Man. (laughs) Really? Yes. I did not know that. So he auditioned for, and got a role in that movie, just to show that he had some sort of screen presence. And, you know, that kind of worked. Alan Bennett saw the film uh, and was like, yeah, okay, this works. Clearly, Alan Bennett never watched Yes Minister or Yes Prime Minister because he was on that show forever. TV show, yes. But yeah. I think it was like a movie thing where he wanted to show Assholes. what, what kind of what he would look like in a movie. Motherfuckers. <laughs> so there, the, the scene uh, we talked about, we talked about the scene where George is strapped to a chair by the doctor. Mm-hmm. Now, what is interesting about this is during this scene, the song that plays is called Zadok the Priest. Mm-hmm. And the cool thing about that song is that was the music that was commissioned for George II's coronation and then everyone to follow that. Hmm. So this kind of frames his like constraint as a type of coronation. Yeah. So as he's being strapped to the chair, his coronation theme is playing. Uh, very conscious decision. Wait, did you say for George II that that was written? It was commissioned for George II, but it okay. was used onwards. All right. Yeah, so I don't have like a whole lot of background about this movie because there just isn't. I already did it with the history. Brian. Yeah, I mean, I mean, background for the movie specifically. Yeah. But uh, there and there isn't any real budget information for this movie, but it did gross around fifteen point two million in the U.S. So That's I mean, all right. it probably did fine. I mean, it looks expensive, but then again, a lot of that stuff was probably just lying around anyways in England, so... We have a castle. Would you like to use a castle? There's a castle and there's some, some uniforms you can wear and there's probably a crown hanging around. Shall we do a deep dive? Dive deep. Well, let's talk about the opening right off the bat. Okay. Because I love the way we open with, like... We're basically playing Doom mm-hmm. in, in the royal, uh, you know, in the castle. Yeah. And we're go- we're kind of being let into this world because the- this huge, like, castle door is opened. Uh, we get the old style of credits. And I like when the title comes up on the screen, yeah. everyone is just, like, looking slightly off camera. Oh, it's very it's very much like a painting. Yeah. It's very like a painting or, and, and, like, even, like, makes me think, like, oh, yeah, this was totally a stage play. And it's also, like, I thought of, like, when the door's opening, it's kind of the way it opens. It's kind of akin to, like, curtains opening yeah. in a play. Yeah, I just think it's a very interesting way to to get you into this. And yeah. speaking of the opening, too, uh, I think it does a lot of uh, cool things with character introductions. And I think this should be said a lot, is that in movies, the way you introduce a character is very important. The first impression is very important. Yeah. And what is the first thing we see George do? Do you remember? No. The first thing we see George do is interact with one of his children. one of his, uh, or, yes. or it might be his grandchildren. I think so, yeah. I think one of his grandchildren. But, and then the first thing we, we see him do is interact with a child and be on the same level as them. Be very, like, you know, charming and everything. And I think it's, one on one hand, it's showing him right off the bat, okay, he's not going to be this evil tyrant. Yeah. But on the other hand, it's like, okay, we're on the same level as a child. There might be something, yeah. that's signaling like there might be something off with him. He may not be just lowering himself to a child's level. Right. Yeah, like foreshadowing of where his mindset is kind of going to go. 
I wrote down this line because I enjoyed it. I enjoy a good balance sheet. Is what <laughs> Pip says line. at one point. There's a very interesting thing with his first speech that he gives. Yeah. Where clearly he has not written the speech because he talks about... He says, our North American possessions... And then you hear Pitt... Or not Pitt, but one of his guys go... <clears throat> and then George says, sorry, our former North American possessions. Because he was still not used to this yeah. fact that uh, the United States was an entity. Yeah. So, uh, its own entity. Um, Should have never happened, Brendan. <laughs> should still be Britain. If they'd have just given them a fucking seat in Parliament, we would be... We would, the United States would be part of Canada now. Um, so this is a scene that I really want to play. We'll talk about it right after. But this is a, uh, this is right at the beginning of the movie. After he's given this speech, he has. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure what this is, but a few people are going up to him one after the other. A few like uh, civilians. Mm-hmm. Do you know what they're doing in this scene? They're they're kind of giving him like the, he says something about like pensions or something. Mm-hmm. Um, but there is one woman who. Could, kind of confronts him and tries to stab him. Yeah. Uh, but I really like this little scene, and it kind of foreshadows a bit. So here we go. No, no, I'm not at His Majesty is unharmed. You have a property. from the crown of England. The poor creature's mad. No, 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 no. Do not hurt her. She has not hurt me. Give me my property, or the country will be drenched in blood. Will it indeed, madam? Well, not with this. It's a fruit knife. Wouldn't cut a cabbage. Oh. Ah, who are you, sir? Oh, this is Captain Greville, sir, the new quarry. Well, you're undressed, sir. Dears are up, sir. You're in a quarry, not a scarecrow. I have a property due to me from the crown of England. You murderous thief. Oh, thank God I have you yet. Do not fuss, madam. So the reason I really like that scene is because you have this woman who's described as everyone as like, it's just a random like mad woman Mm. who tries to stab him. And immediately you get George feeling empathy for her. He says, oh, she's just a mad, she's, she's, she wasn't going to kill me. She had a fruit knife. Like what what was going to happen? And it kind of also, uh, foreboding of his condition coming up in the movie. It's actually kind of a weird, um foreshadowing to to what happens later in his life because after he has his first bout of this madness in 1788 um he he's noted a couple times he shows clemency to people who've been convicted of crimes but are having mental issues okay Uh, and obviously he understood in a way that other people of the time simply didn't right and and that shows in his in his clemency for those people so you mentioned the thing about how george george third kind of knew a lot of details about a lot of his kind of you know even though his lowly appointments yeah his servants and such do you think he's doing that in a way like do you think he is aware i think he is aware somewhat that there's something off mm. but do you think he's doing that in a way to kind of uh occupy his mind to kind of like make make it so that he is distracted maybe could be or or i mean it could even be um that that's the manifestation of his mania is that it, it it is projected through his knowledge. Like he's telling people all these relations and just kind of rambling on because it's part of the mania. There's a line here. Actually, you made me think of, and where can I find it here? Uh, oh yeah. He says, uh, he, he does know something's going on because at one point he says the line, I'm here, but I'm not all there. Yeah. Uh, so, and uh, yeah, at various points in the movie, I think he knows that there's something going on and he can't control it. And you see it in those moments of lucidity. And, but, they yeah. Don't last. Yeah, and he has a beautiful scene too later with his wife, played by Helen Mirren, uh, where he says, "I don't think like when I say things, I know what I'm saying, mm. 
but I I know that it doesn't seem right. Yeah. Like he's like he's aware that it doesn't seem right, but he doesn't know why. Like yeah. he it, it seems fine to him. Yeah. It, it, exactly. In his head, it all makes sense, but he knows something's wrong because people looking at him like he's a fucking idiot. Yeah. Well, I mean, assuming they look at him at all, which they generally don't. There's a lot of good, like, little comedy bits here. There's one that is, like, could be straight out of a, like, a just a standard comedy movie, but there's a part there's a part early on where Mr. Pitt, uh, who's basically is described as a cold fish by yeah. George, because he's very stoic, but he's a very, he's a very good man. Like, mm. he's he's his guy. He's not, he's loyal. He's not, like, he doesn't turn on him. Mm. He doesn't want power. He just wants to serve the king. Yeah. But there is a section where he's bowing out of the room down this super long hallway. <laughs> it just and he's laughs. walking, he's walking, still facing the king the whole way. He can't turn his back on the king. So he's got to like back his ass down this entire hallway. <laughs> right. It lasts for like a solid 30 seconds. Yeah. And it's like that. That's just like a, a visual gag right yeah. out of a like that's ridiculous a good, good gag. <laughs> uh, and then there's also like, there's, there's, there's a very, uh, there's a lot of comedy with relation to making fun of the kind of medicine at the time mm. because you have the king who is uh, treated by this horrible doctor. Yeah. Like, not a good doctor at all. And and they're also, at the same time, making fun of, too, of how no one could actually, like, talk to the king. Like, he yeah. says something along the lines of, well, what are the king's symptoms? And the king's equity says, well, why don't you just ask him yourself? And he's like, my God, boy, are you new to this yeah. job? I cannot just ask the king's symptoms. He must tell me them. <laughs> and he's like, the king is just a man. He's like, what is wrong with yeah. you? Like, just stuff that's, like that. That's pretty much treasonous, saying the king is just a man. And, and, and like he's like, may I take your Majesty's pulse? And it's like he has to like relay that yeah. message. But the thing that I thought was really funny is he takes George the Third's pulse and says something along the lines of like, "Oh, your pulse is very fast." And George Third kind of gives like a confident like, hmm. "Ah, you see, yeah. see, yeah, I'm it's good, very good." <laughs> While at the same time, George Third uh, loves religious figures and hates medicine men. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, and then, okay, so this is the thing. The reason I wanted to say the thing with him remembering everything, because there's a scene where he 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 wakes up at four in the morning. Yeah. He's like bright and early. He's like, why isn't anyone awake? I'm the king. The king is unattended. And he wakes up his servants. And he has to ask them their name like three times. Mm. Like he forgets it. Yeah. And earlier he was just like, boom, boom, boom. So I wonder if that's him being like, I'm starting to forget things. I'm going to try to remember a few details as much as possible. Yeah. To kind of combat that. Yeah, part of his struggle with this, trying to get out of it his own way. But He also has his way with Lady Pembroke. Yeah, he does. He uh, takes a few liberties with her. Yeah, because uh, for a while he thinks that uh, she's his wife. Yeah. Uh, and not his actual... And his wife is not his wife. Uh, Queen Charlotte. Yes. Who, by the way, Helen Mirren... As much as we say Nigel Hawthorne is great in this, Helen Mirren is wonderful, and she's doing this great like mix of like English and German accent, yeah, which because I she's was an Austrian princess. I fantastic, believe. yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and the thing is, like about Nigel Hawthorne, I want to go back to his performance again because when he's struggling to remember his servants' names, you can see like the pain on his face, mm-hmm. and it's so heartbreaking, so heartbreaking to watch that. They can't remember the most basic thing of the people around him, you know. I also got to throw this in because I think I think maybe maybe it's too obvious, but like when he's losing he's losing his mind more and he thinks London is flooding, yeah, and he's getting his kids up to the top, they're going on a spiral staircase. Yeah, I mean that's got to be that's got to be a metaphor for his mind, yeah. right? I mean, spiraling spiraling out of control, spiraling out of control. Hey, I'm just gonna push my glasses up. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, I also wrote down the quote: "I've always found the stool more eloquent than the pulse." <laughs> it's very true. It's absolutely true. My stools are very eloquent. Oh, that's good. Yeah. Unlike yours, which are just very just savage. Uh, 
this also this quote this this one does not hold up god rot all royals give us the wisdom of america <laughs> oh those revolutionary sentiments let's talk about ian home he does a lot of really good staring in this movie. He, yeah. He does a lot with very little. He's very intense. He's very intense. I and mean, he is great in this movie. He's good in anything. He's good in everything, anything. But, like, I love how his method, again, we mentioned this already, but his method is to stare the king down. Do you look at me, sir? I do, sir. Have you in my eye? No, I have you in mine. You're bold, sir. But by God, I'm bolder. Not look at me. I'm not one of you. How much you must behave or endeavor to do so? Must, must. Whose must is this? Your must or my must? Get away from me, you scabby bum sucker! <laughs> lick at your lick fingers. Clean your tongue, sir. Clean your tongue. I will not. I'll be a gift in the graveyard first. Very well. If your majesty will not behave, you must be restrained. Yeah, so I just think that's cool. That's like the first... That's like him... And and there's another really cool acting thing is that when Ian Holm introduces the kind of restraint chair, mm. as he's turning around to face the chair, you see him shake a little bit. Like yeah. he's very he's not yeah. confident like he lets on, but he's he's very nervous about doing this. Like yeah. you could get executed yeah, exactly doing this if, kind of thing. If, if the prince of wales decides that he wants to he's not treating his father well yeah he could just string him up in the courtyard <laughs> very much so especially if the king yeah if the king feels he's being talked down to in any way that could be the end of him yeah and what what's cool about ian holm is that, again he's not a he's not a uh typical uh scientist or doctor yeah. he runs a farm where he has people with illnesses work yeah dementia yeah dementia mind stuff to distract them from their everyday life and first thing when i saw that though i will say i was like oh so he is like running slave labor but i kind of understand what it was now i mean in the sense that we kind of had that today where you will have people that are mentally challenged or otherwise you know disabled that will work for companies and you know make pewter products or macrame or whatever else you need Another thing about Ian Holmes' character, Dr. Willis, uh, this gets said in the movie, um, is that they mention Shakespeare. Yeah. And he says, oh, I've never read Shakespeare. Yeah. I wonder if that's like today's version of like when someone says, I've never seen Game of Thrones. Yeah, it might be. <laughs> You'd think he would have at least like heard about it. Yeah, because they make a couple Shakespeare references and he's just completely just sails over his head. Well, well he says, I'm a clergyman. I never yeah. read Shakespeare. Yeah. Why Shakespeare- would you? And that is kind of called back on in this uh, in this other little bit I want to play here. This is uh, them reading King Lear. Uh, Dr. Willis or Ian Holm is kind of chastised by somebody else. He's like, why would you have him read King Lear? It's about a king who loses his mind. <laughs> and he says, well, I don't know Shakespeare. I didn't realize until we got to the end. <laughs> yeah. So this is them reading a little bit of King Lear. And it's a fer- fairly beautiful scene uh, where I think I think King George III has this kind of He's revolution. kind of pulling it all back together at this yeah. point. So here we go. You do me wrong to take me out of the grave. Thou art a soul in bliss, but I am bound upon a wheel of fire that mine own tears do scold like molten lead. Oh, it's so true. Pray do not mock me. I am a very foolish, fond old man. To deal plainly, 
fear I am not in my perfect mind. And I mean, you could say that that is a little bit on the nose, mm. but it's kind of wonderful is that he's admitting that he's not of, he knows he's not of the right mind, yeah. but he's saying it in the, in the context of reading King Lear. Exactly. And that's kind of, it's almost like he's okay to say that because he's not admitting any kind of weakness. He's just, he's just reading a play. He's just reading a play. Take what you will from that. Yeah. Uh... Yeah, so he seems very, like, genuinely touched while they're reading the play with him. Of course, uh, Ian Holm does not read the play with him because, as George Third says, he's a fine doctor, but he's a terrible actor. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> so the, 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 he does improve, and at one point he did look like Obi-Wan Kenobi yeah. in, in a cloak uh, with the gray hair. But what, the way he improves is, like, so the, Ian Holm is big on the eyes, mm. looking him right in the eyes. And there's even a scene earlier where he's looking him in the eyes, he's feeding him, the king spits it in his face, hmm. and Eholm does not react. He doesn't even flinch hard. No. He just closes his eyes, opens them back up, the king eats it, no muss, no fuss. That's right. Then later on we get a bit where King George kind of lashes out at someone, and rather than uh, Holmes' character having to be like, you know, strap him to the chair, he gets up, walks over to the chair, and just allows himself to be strapped in. And that's the progress he's made at that point. That he's like a dog who knows where his punishment bed is. I mean, overall, let's talk about the mental illness because, like, mm. like you said, it was li- well, it was likely de- some sort of dementia. Uh, but you also bipolar, said bipolar. Yeah, I think is yeah. what they think it is as of modern day. So I think by the end of the film, I don't believe I don't even think the movie is trying to convince you that he's cured. No, I think the movie is trying to convince you that he has somewhat of a control over it for the mm-hmm. time being. Yeah, because the doctor, if you notice during the first few scenes, he's still there. Yeah. He's still in the background, kind of keeping an eye on things. Yeah. And there's a scene after where he's talking to Helen Mirren. They have their, they, they, like, you know, Mrs. King. Oh, yes, Mr. King. That mm. cute little thing they have back and forth. Yeah. And uh, he, he, uh, he basically has the look, a look on his face. I don't know if you noticed this, but when they're hugging towards the end, it just shows his face a little bit too long. Mm. And you can tell by the look on his face that he's not fully confident that he's, you know, he's good to go. Mm-hmm. He knows something else is still lingering. He seems to have some memory loss too. Yeah. Uh, still, yeah. Uh, because he approaches, <laughs> he approaches Lady Pembroke, and he said, because he, you know, he ravaged her earlier, mm-hmm. and he says, "So, uh, did we, uh, did we do it?" Basically, <laughs> yeah. is what he says. <laughs> he does, and she's like, "No." Yeah, she's like, "No, you acted quite professionally. It was nothing at all." And he just goes. Okay. Well, doesn't he say? I thought he said something like, "She says, like, did we go about it?" Because I surely would like to know if what happened if we did. Like, yeah, yeah. dirty old man wants to get off on the memory that he doesn't have. <laughs> uh, he punishes his son hard. Yeah, he says, "No, you're not marrying that woman that you want to marry. You're gonna act like there's nothing wrong. We're gonna wave to the people." He gets one little nice little farewell from the doctor in the crowd. In my mind, I was like, uh, I, I heard the voice in my head from the Simpsons going, "Wave to them, blow them kisses." But that's just me. I, what is that? What episode is that? That's from? where uh, where um, Nelson laughs at the the guy in the little car, and he gets out. And he's super oh, tall, right? And he makes him walk in with his pants down. Look, everyone! It's the guy that laughs at everyone. <laughs> that, that one. Wave to the people, blow them kisses. <laughs> well, I mean, I think that's all I really have to say. I think this is like a. Uh, I mean, jump the gun to the end, to the end, but this is like a pretty wonderful way of telling a story about mental illness, which you would not expect because this movie, again, it's a period piece, mm. and 
yeah, it's just it's just crazy how I don't want to say relatable. Like I'm not, <laughs> but yeah. like it's crazy. I've I've, the, I've I've known people in this state or close to something resembling this state, and it's crazy how accurate they get some of this stuff. It yeah, uh, this movie is is fantastic in how it's in the dialogue, in the fucking the look of it, in. Nigel Hawthorne's performance, which I'm just, I'm amazed that I've never really seen this guy in anything before, and then all of a sudden... Now you can watch Demolition Man. Yeah, exactly, and I'll know exactly who he is, and it's weird because, like, this movie came out in 1994, I was 11, and I remembered the hoopla around this movie, that he was getting a lot of Oscar buzz at the time, and, and I just weird that I never saw it all those years, and now, 25 years later, here I am watching it, it's like, holy shit, this was good. I don't know if I would appreciate this at 11, but now at 35, it's fucking great. I'm gonna guess no. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna guess you were probably like, eh, it's boring. <laughs> uh, so, I mean... Yeah, well, that wraps that up. Let's Let's get into kind of how this movie... How others saw this film. Sure. Shall we? All right. Well, it does go to the Oscars. Mm-hmm. And like you said last week, you uh, you were wondering if he had been nominated for an Oscar. He did, but he did not win. Don't tell me Tom Hanks won Best Actor for Forrest Gump. Did you not know that? I mean, it's been a long time, so I don't remember how many Oscars that movie won. I know it won a bunch. But... Tom Hanks won uh, an Oscar two years in a row. He won for Philadelphia, and then the next year he won for Forrest Gump. Nigel Hawthorne nominated for Best Actor does not win. Tom Hanks is the winner. Other nominees include Morgan Freeman for Shawshank Redemption. Oh my God, really? Wow. Paul Newman for Nobody's Fool and John Travolta for Pulp Fiction. Wow, strong year. year. Yeah. Uh, Helen Mirren nominated for Best Supporting Actress. Mm -hmm. Well-deserved. She does not win. Other nominees include Rosemary Harris for Tom and Viv. Uh, Uma Thurman for Pulp Fiction, mm. Jennifer Tilly for Bullets Over Broadway, and the winner was Diane Weist for, Bull- for Bullets Over Broadway. Diane Weist is a name I only know as a Family Guy reference. The only... <laughs> <laughs> the most I know about Diane Weist is the day I was confused that her last name wasn't West. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Best Adapted Screenplay from Alan Bennett gets a nomination, but it does not win. The other nominees for this one include Nobody's Fool, Quiz Show, Shawshank Redemption, and the winner, of course, Forrest Gump. Damn, quiz show. Great movie, too, folks. If you haven't seen it, it's a great movie. Wins one Oscar. One Oscar. One Oscar. Was it, it costumes? Close. Best oh. art direction. Yeah, okay. I get that. At our lovely little BAFTAs, the British Academy Film and Television Awards. The real awards, Brendan. That's right. At the BAFTAs, it takes home the following. Because they used to have, I want to say that they used to have uh, Best British Film and Best Film overall. Mm. They used to have two separate categories. No longer the case. But they win Best British Film. Best Actor for Nigel Hawthorne, and Best Makeup and Hair. I wonder if Best Film that year was Pulp Fiction. I don't know. But it also is nominated for Best Film, Best Direction, Best Lead Actress for Helen Mirren, Best Supporting Actor for Ian Holm, Best Adapted Screenplay, Best Music, Best Cinematography, Best Production Design, Best Costume Design, Best Editing, and Best Sound. Damn. So not didn't win all those, but it was nominated for Yeah. What I, I wanted to point out, though, is that it's nominated for Best Lead Actress for Helen Mirren. At the Academy Awards, she gets a nomination for Best Supporting Actress. Um, I think I can explain that. It's all horseshit award ceremonies. But I mean, like, okay, but well, it's like, like it's like well, it's like with Green Book this year, like uh, the the black guy. I mean, we were talking about this earlier. In my mind, that guy's like the center of the story. He should be the main character. He's but definitely like uh, he, uh, the guy wrote the book, the the mobster. He wrote the book, so he's have, the main character. Having having seen Green Book, Mahershala Ali is definitely the supporting. 
but I mean, also actor. over the years, you've seen plenty of people nominated for supporting roles, and it's clear that they're more than a supporting role; that they're a lead role in the movie. But for whatever political or, or well, I whatever mean, I mean, this categorization reason they get dumped in the supporting actor category. I mean, a little behind the scenes, the, the on the night we are taping this, the Oscars have just happened, mm. and Olivia Coleman is a good example because she just won for best lead actress. Having seen the favorite, she is def. I would say she's the supporting. Yeah. Um, but I, I don't think they could figure out between the three ladies in the movie who they would have as the lead, and I yeah. think that's what happened. And I think that might be what happened with Helen Mirren. Yeah. Maybe they wanted to throw her in Best Lead Actress, but they didn't want to disclude, uh, exclude all these people. So like, okay, well, we'll throw in the other category. We don't yeah. want to, we don't want to snub Dame Helen Mirren. Certainly not. No. Nigel Hawthorne was the first openly gay actor to be nominated for an Oscar. Did not know he was gay. Did not know he was open about it. Did not know he was nominated for an Oscar. Actually, I did know that. <laughs> he did know that because you just <laughs> heard me say that. He was very frustrated, though, at the time because uh, he did a lot of press for the movie, obviously, in yeah. America. And all the American interviewers, of course, wanted to know about his life, wanted yeah. to know his personal life, hardly asking any questions about the movie. Which is just not done in Britain. You don't, Just keep your mouth shut. You, they don't want to tell you and you don't want to know. Yeah, as if I learned any, anything from Darling. <laughs> if you want to know about somebody's personal life, you go read it in the Daily Mail like anybody else or the Sun. I will say, too, that um, the, the, unfortunately, that's not a thing that's changed. No. Well, anytime you, a lot, a lot of times you see actor interviews, two of, the, two of the first questions are or some of the more common questions are like what do you think about Donald Trump doing this? Or like, you know, what's your personal life? Oh, we've heard some gay rumors. I remember there was an interview with, uh, there was a panel interview with Tom Hardy and a bunch of people from Mad Max. And somebody asked, somebody asked a question about his sexual orientation. And he literally said, what, what do you mean? And they're like, well, we just want to know if there, uh, there's been rumors. He's like, so you want to know about my personal life? Like, yeah, they want to know, is it true? And he's like, what does it matter? And then they just moved on. Yeah, exactly. It's it doesn't irrelevant. fucking matter. If he wants to talk about it, great. If he doesn't, I would just leave him alone. But also, Hollywood, if you want to trash the president, go ahead. Yeah, we're, fuck. we're all for that. Well, Jason, we've come to the end. What a good movie, Brennan. It was a great movie. I really enjoyed that. I um, want to say that this first... The first of all, this was our first costume drama on this yep. list. There are a couple others. I first of many, if it's British films, we're going to have a few on here. Oh, there's a few. I don't think there's like too, too many. There's, we got Elizabeth coming up. Yep. We got Shakespeare in Love coming oh, up. Yep. Uh, which I've never seen either. Me neither. Uh, I've seen Elizabeth when I was like 13. Yeah. So I probably didn't appreciate it. Is that Gwyneth Paltrow? That's Shakespeare in Love. Elizabeth right. is the Kate Blanchett. One. Right, right. An actual British person. <laughs> what are you talking about? Uh, however, this one uh, certainly carries more of a madcap charm yes. than the typical stuffy costume movies tend to possess. Oh, absolutely. It, I, I do feel like it's a good length. Yeah. Like, a lot of movies like this are too long. Yeah, no, this, this is not some extended four-hour uh, 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 mutual masturbation session between filmmaker <laughs> and actor. No, this is this is a pretty svelte uh, hour 50. There hour 50, yeah. yeah. And it's, it's, it's not even that I'm, like, ready to discount a movie immediately because it's too long. No. Like, I, I've enjoyed many a three-hour movie. And we're still going to get to Lawrence of Arabia, which is four hours long. <laughs> Don't tempt the dice. <laughs> but, uh... Yeah, it doesn't need to be, and it isn't, which is a nice thing to see. Right? Yeah. It doesn't I'd need say. to be three to... No, it doesn't hour need to be. Hour and 50 is perfect for that. Absolutely fine. 
I wonder how accurate... I, mean, I know we talk about accuracies, but I do wonder kind of how accurate that ending was with him interrupting Parliament just in the nick of time. That uh, felt very teen movie. According to what I've read, I don't know that he actually like necessarily stomped into Parliament, but he basically showed back up and was like, I'm good, guys. Okay. Yeah. Because it felt very... Or, or like The Graduate, because when Dustin Hoffman comes by banging on the window yeah. like, don't get married! Because like I said, like I said earlier, the, the, the legislation that they needed for the Regency Act had to pass the House of Lords, and he basically showed up before they could vote on it, so... I would say too that uh, <laughs> saying that mentioned the graduate um, after that ending, it probably doesn't go so well for them either. No, but that's the graduate. We're talking about the madness of King George. We did talk about the madness of King George, but now we talk about the madness of the universe in the form of dice. The madness, the random madness. Do you understand? Hear it. You hear it, I you? do hear it. See, what we're doing here is we don't actually want to pick the movies because that would be so gauche of us. We want to curate this podcast. Yeah. yeah, if we picked movies, it would be like we'd watch Life of Brian, and then we watch Goldfinger, and then we watch Lawrence of Arabia, and then we'd have a bunch of shit to watch. So, <laughs> what we do instead is we have these English patient would be last. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, we have these dice. These dice are connected with the very fabric of the universe, and these dice will tell us what our next movie is. Because the number you get on those dice is the number that will correspond with the movie that we choose from the Absolutely. PFI Top 100. And if we happen to roll the movie that we've already watched, we're going to watch, watch it, again. it again. And again and again. And again and again. Actually, Three, we're not. Six weeks of Lawrence of Arabia. Here we go. We will do a reroll. Because... <sighs> okay, I don't know what I'm ready for. Here we go. Ready? Player one. All right, so we have got 52. 52. 52. Our next movie, Brendan, number 52 on the BFI Top 100 list. All right. Well, I've never heard of this movie. All right. But it's from 1963, so we're cool. going back again. We're going way back. Uh, directed by Lindsay Anderson, uh -huh. and it is called This Sporting Life. Okay. And I believe it's a ki I believe it's some sort of kitchen sink drama. Oh, it's not a soccer movie? It's not a cricket film? No, do, you know what? Don't tell me. I don't want to know. Okay. We'll figure it out. <laughs> so, This Sporting Life. Yeah. Fun. 1963. What a good year. Fun, 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 fun. Having fun on the weekend. That's right. The sporting life. <laughs> this sporting life. This sporting life. Not that one. This man's army. This sporting life. <laughs> right. Well, Jason, before we go, I ha I do forget to do this quite a bit. Yep. But we should mention that you can find us on the social media. You can go on Facebook and just search for Screen and Country. Absolutely. You can also find us on Twitter at BFI underscore pod. We are not in any way officially associated with the British Film Institute, but that's our handle. So take it or leave it. But British Film Institute, if you want to, uh, you know, sponsor us, go with If you want to make it official head. and buy us a mixer, that'd be real sweet. Yeah. If you want to buy us a mixer or a, a nice blender. Oh, man. Or perhaps a, a DVD copy of every movie on this list. I'd like a food processor. If you could do that, could you make it two? Yeah. Because Jason and I don't watch the movies well, together. Well, we I mean, though, if you do it, do a Blu-ray because I have the PlayStation and it needs to be Blu-ray. Brendan, you can leave him VHS tapes. That's fine. I don't have a VCR. Guys, well, behind the scenes, we are worst enemies. You can uh, you can leave him a PAL VCR that he cannot watch. <laughs> Thanks, PAL. <laughs> hey. Hey. But, uh, yeah. And Jason, you can find you on Twitter at... I'm at Jason D. McLeod. That's M-A-C-L-E-O-D, spelt properly in the proper Scottish manner. Perfect. And just if you want to follow me, that's cool. If you want to message me some recipes for cool 60s British food, I would love to see that. Uh, if you want to send nudes, please don't. 
I'm glad you said that. I was worried we didn't set that up. <laughs> so that is going to do it. So I will say this to you, Jason. Go ahead, Brendan. God save the queen. God save the screen. For screen and country, I'm Brendan. And I'm Jason. And I had a great time. What, what? What, what? Oh, yes. Oh, I'm the king. I heard you like movies. I heard you like to hustle. I heard you like podcasts. Well, guess what? There's a podcast for you out there called The Home Video Hustle. Damn right. Every Friday, we talk about whatever movie PJ picks out the bag. What does that mean? Every Wednesday on our YouTube page, I put a bunch of movies in a bag, and PJ picks one out at random. And then we just watch it. We talk about it for maybe like an hour, hour and a half, two hours. Whatever we feel like doing, wherever the conversation leads us. But do we actually talk about the movie? Most of the time. Ah. Tangents galore. Yes. So believe me, we may be a movie podcast, but it's not always about movies. We might talk about video games. Mm-hmm. Music. music. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. the big one, music. Uh, sometimes we might get a little bit of politicalness in there. Yes. Sometimes we may just, oh, we know what we like to do. We like to tell stories, PJ. Ah, yes. I am the master storyteller yes. of the podcast realm. <laughs> Undefeated. So if you like to hear about movies, video games, whatever foolishness comes to our mind, the most random stuff you can think of, check out the Home Video Hustle. You can find us on the Stitchers. Yes. The Google Play. Yes. Apple Podcasts. What else? Podbean. What else? Podcast Addict. Goddamn. All that. Ain't no reason you can't get your hustle on. We everywhere. Worldwide, baby. Hustle, motherfucker. Hustle. Hey, we can't cuss in the promo, PJ. Ah. We gotta be family friendly. There may be podcasts out there that don't want his hair to say. Ah. 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 Good fun stuff. <laughs> well, <laughs> you. <laughs> no, don't, don't run the listeners away, PJ. Ah, I'm sorry. But this is going kind of long. Yes. So we're we'll going to end this and say, hey, check out the Home Video Hustle every Friday on all the various podcast outlets. Peace. Peace. Hey, this is Liz. And this is Heather. And we are Nerdy Bitches Podcast. A show where two geeky ladies podcast their way through pop culture. From movies and TV to our regular book club and everything in between, we bring you our favorite fandoms with a feminine eye. We're talking Star Wars, Star Trek, Harry Potter, DC Marvel, comic books, and anime. And don't forget sci-fi, fantasy, action movies, video games, D&D, board games, and so much more. Be sure to check us out on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Podbeam, or wherever you find awesome podcasts. You can also find us hanging out on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, and at nerdybitches.com. Talk to you soon.